Yeah, let's bow our heads in prayer as we prepare to hear God's word. Gracious and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day and the time that we can come into your presence as your people to corporately worship you. But Lord, even as we sit here as individuals, I pray, Lord, that you would prepare us to receive from you this day. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Good morning. So good to see you. Uh, I'm continuing in the lectionary readings from the book of Romans and uh, just carrying some of the uh, important thoughts through. As I've, uh, if, if you're just joining us and you don't know the background, the book of Romans was written by the Apostle Paul in uh, preparation for a trip he was going to make uh, from Jerusalem to Spain. And he was going to um, make a side trip you know, on the way to go to Rome because at that point of time, he had yet to visit Rome, which was the most important city in his time. Obviously, the seat of power for the Roman Empire. And uh, you know, he was uh, wanting to introduce himself, but also make sure that the ground was laid as to what he is all about, the message that he brings. And in it, you know, you know, from the very beginning, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation, first to the Jew, then to the Greek. Uh, understanding the mixed congregation he was speaking to, he was pointing out, yet all of us have this need for the gospel. And uh, I've entitled my sermon today, The Spirit is Willing. And all of us know, right, this saying, the Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Of course, it comes from Scripture, uh, when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane telling his disciples, watch and pray, you know, uh, the reality was they all fell asleep. And he already knew that was what was going to happen. So he said uh, a truth that the spirit is often willing, but the flesh is weak. This week in the news, we've seen a lot of weak flesh <laughs> paraded before society and um, but what I'm talking about is not about the human spirit, because as I've pointed out last week, when Paul mentions the spirit more often than not, 99% of the time, he's talking about the spirit of God. So today, what I'm talking about is how the spirit of God is willing to work in our own lives. All right. So it's not about uh, 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 our human spirits, but God's spirit. Not only is he willing, but he's also able and as I pointed out to you, Romans 8 is really not about sanctification, although it deals with that question, but it's about our security as Christians. I remind you again, the whole uh, chapter begins in verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And this passage we're looking at really follows on from the last verse of last week's passage. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. And this is our understanding as Christians that the uh, message of uh, the gospel is this. It's not about making bad people good, but it is about making dead people alive. That we were once dead in our trespasses and sins, but God now raises us to new life. And, you know, the Apostle Paul deals with this uh, question. So let's get into the passage. In verses 12 and 13, he says, 
So then, brothers, and every time you see this, brethren, it's actually a collective term. It means brothers and sisters. We are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And so he's laying the foundations, you know, pointing out we have been bought with a price, therefore we are in debt. Elsewhere, he talks about the fact that the love of God compels us or constrains us, that, you know, we, we, we have a huge debt to repay in a sense. Not that we earn it, but, you know, it, it, we, we live out of the um, finished work of Christ on the cross. That is how we are called to live our lives. You know, not according to the flesh, but by the Spirit. And, and I talked about that last week. If you don't know what it is, then, you know, go listen. <laughs> it's on YouTube. It's on the uh, sermon podcast. You can go ahead and listen to that. But let's continue because we see that the Spirit is willing, first and foremost, as a witness to us of who we are. Primarily, verse 14, he says, For all who are led by the Spirit are sons, and uh, you can put in brackets, and sons and daughters of God. Again, it's, it's, it's the fact of the matter is the Holy Spirit leads us in a way that you know, helps us to uh, 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 know our identity as children of God. You know, I've preached from Psalm 23 and how important it is to understand that, you know, uh, God, the good shepherd, leads us. And you remember, I, I made the distinction between the shepherd and the butcher. The butcher drives us, right? Whereas the shepherd leads us, and it's, it's, it's a gentle leading. You know, and this is the, the, the nature of how God works. He leads us, and He allows us at our own pace, at our own time in some way, in some sense, that He draws us to Himself. And that's God, you know, at work. And, and, and that's how His witness uh, primarily works in us, in a, in a prompting, in a leading. But then He goes on in verses uh, 15 to say, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, which is what we just sang, you know, that we are not a slave to sin, we are not a slave to fear. But instead, we have received the spirit of adoption as sons. What does that mean? You know, why does it mean for the Holy Spirit to lead us into uh, understanding who we are, but also then being the spirit of adoption? How is this setting us free from fear? We have to understand adoption in Paul's terms and in his cultural context. You know, we, of course, practice adoption, but it's quite different from how they would have practiced it in their day and age, right? Uh, for, for them, what often would happen is a person who is wealthy, and maybe he doesn't have uh, uh, someone to inherit his wealth, would, it was common practice to uh, adopt someone. And more often than not, it'd be someone from his household. Uh, now, mind you, in Paul's day, Slaves were not what you see depicted, you know, in uh, America in the 16th, 17th, 18th century. Not 16th, but 17th, 18th century, if you, you know what I mean. Uh, you know, slaves were quite different because they were part of the family. They were part of the household. And it was not uncommon that a slave would suddenly be adopted as a son because why? The uh, rich uh, ruler or owner would deem this person worthy, would deem this person favoured, would deem this person someone that, you know, knows, he knows, can carry on his legacy. 
because his character is there and, 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 and the like. And so adoption was an important uh, uh, practice which basically said you are chosen, you are favoured. And when Paul says that we receive the spirit of adoption as sons, you know, it's, it's, it's a wonderful thing. It's, it's a, 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 a message in which, you know, God is saying that He favors us. That you are my son in whom I'm well pleased. You are my daughter in whom I'm well pleased. Can you see how important that uh, concept is in Paul's day and it, how, how massive uh, an understanding it would be for those who are receiving it? But he carries on, he says, not only then do we have this spirit of adoption, but now we cry, Abba, Father. Uh, for you did not receive this, um, uh, Abba, Father, oh, sorry, verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And, you know, crying Abba, Father, ultimately speaks about intimacy. I've talked about this in the past and how the term is a term of endearment, it's a term of intimacy. There isn't quite an equivalent in the English. You know, I, I suppose it would be like a young child calling me daddy, right? You, you, you grow up, they don't call you daddy anymore. Right? <laughs> that seems to be something uh, juveniles leave. But it's a term of endearment. It's a term of intimacy. It's a term in which it, it, it uh, shows that there is this connection now, Abba is not quite like uh, as juvenile as the word daddy, but you, you understand the concept that Jesus paved the way and opened the way for an intimacy with God. Now, some people tell me, Pastor, you sometimes look very fierce. <laughs> and I don't know why. You, you look at my child photos. Uh, when I'm not thinking of anything, I tend to have a scowl on my face. It looks like I'm angry at someone. <laughs> it's not the case. So if you ever see me and you think, oh, Pastor, you're very <laughs> scary, because you always seem angry. It's not that, all right? That's just my, my expression and my face. But, you know, that's all, as a result, sometimes uh, young people are a bit cautious about approaching me, you know, but my children never have a problem, right? Because they understand who I am. They understand that just because I have that look on my face, I'm not necessarily in an angry mood. I'm just not thinking about it, and it's just default mode, uh, right? The resting face is not a good face <laughs> for me. I need to learn to smile more. But, uh, the idea that uh, Paul is, 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 is trying to show and say, you know, what the Holy Spirit does in us is he brings us this intimacy. This is precisely why Jesus taught the disciples when they wanted to learn how to pray. What's the address he taught them? He said to use, Our Father who art in heaven. Right? Now, the uh, Jewish people already had a concept of God as Father, but they saw him as Father of, you know, the entire race, of the people of God, collectively, but never in an intimate, personal way. And Jesus opened the way for that, and by His Holy Spirit, He bears witness, and He gives us the ability then to cry, Abba, Father. But we move on, and we see how He continues to work in us, in the here and now, in the reality of life that we live. Because in verse 17, He says, uh, verse 17 to 22, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. You know, when you receive uh, an inheritance, you get the good, bad, and the ugly. All of it comes uh, a part and parcel of it. And Paul then continues to point out 
For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And Paul is, you know, very much aware, you know, becoming a Christian, being adopted as sons and daughters of God, doesn't necessarily mean automatically it's a life of uh, um, a bed of roses. That there is the reality of the fact that we continue to live in a world that is fallen. That, you know, not just us as individuals, as human beings, but even creation itself groans. That creation, something is broken in creation. And that's why we see pain, that's why we see suffering, that's why it is a, a part and parcel of our life. I want to address something that, you know, sometimes in church, uh, uh, we are um, in danger of doing. And I'm going to use big theological terms, but I'm going to try and explain it to you, so bear with me. You know, I am a charismatic you know, I, I believe in the work of the Holy Spirit. I grew up under my father's ministry here in this church, you know, where uh, when the Holy Spirit fell in Singapore in the 70s, this was one of the hotbeds of, of, of Pentecostal charismatic expression. And unfortunately, this is, tends to be uh, uh, something that uh, charismatic Christians tend to fall into, and I, I include myself. And it's this danger of having an over-realized eschatology. Uh, sounds big. What do I mean by that? Eschatology is a study of end things, end times, what happens at the end. And over-realized eschatology means that as Christians, sometimes we want to fast forward. Skip everything that's in between, you know, fast forward to the end. And uh, you want what is promised to us in the future, here and now. And there's nothing wrong with that, having a desire and the hope. In fact, Paul, after this, talks about the hope that carries us through. But in an over-realized eschatology, we say, you know, we, we claim health and wealth, we claim your best life now, ignoring the fact that we live in a time and in a place and in a space where life is still broken. Hear me correctly. I'm not saying that as Christians we should not pray for health. By all means, we do. We cry out to God, God, heal. Please heal. You know, Please set right what is wrong in my life, in the life of those I love, those who I come into contact with. It is not wrong for us as Christians to pray for wealth, for God to bless us, to prosper us, to help us to succeed in the things that we do. But when we begin to think that just because I name it, I can claim it, that just because the Bible promises that in the end, we will all, you know, find uh, a place where there is no more death, no more dying, no more pain, no more sickness, where the streets are paved with gold. We cannot try and fast forward to it. You understand what I mean? That's what an over-realized eschatology is. So hear me correctly. I think it's perfectly right, you know, for us to want to operate in the things of the Spirit, but, yeah, and, and, and want to move in that way and really believe in a God of miracles. But 
when we ignore the reality of life and we don't have an answer for what we actually face here and now, you know, we are in danger of living in la-la land, so to speak, outside the realm of reality. And especially when it comes to the question of suffering. And this passage right here, Paul deals with this reality of suffering. That we, along with all of creation, we are groaning together in the pains of childbirth. You know, Martin Luther, who is the the great uh, reformer, the the theologian who sparked the Reformation, uh, is someone that I hold, you know, in high regard. Not everything, because some of his stuff was really out there. (laughs) Uh, But uh, he was the one that uh, in October 31st, 1517, nailed to the Wittenberg uh, church door, 95 theses. Basically laying out why he thinks the church is going wrong. And he did that because he was trying to provoke a debate. Trying to get people to open up and talk about the, the, the ways in which, you know, the church is broken. And, and that we need to set things right according to what he had learned and God had revealed to him in Scripture. You know, he wanted to draw the church back to the authority of the Word of God. Unfortunately, you know, although it set off a, a time bomb and, and uh, uh, you know, he was very soon um, becoming persona non grata, uh, he didn't get the debate he wanted. However, about six months later, in April of uh, 1518, uh, um, Luther was an Augustinian monk, a monk in the order of uh, St. Augustine, whom I talked about last week. You know, and the insights of uh, Augustine really permeated this order, and so they understood uh, the truth of our restless hearts and how we find our rest in God. And uh, his, the head of his order called him uh, to Heidelberg to give an account of what he believes. But because some of the stuff in the 95 Theses were very controversial in some ways, attacking the Pope and the like and things like that, Uh, He wanted to stick to safer ground. So he asked Luther to deal or to explain his understanding of sin, of uh, um, free will, and of grace. And out of that came the Heidelberg Disputation, in which he wrote 28 theses, easier to digest. It's a a powerful uh, exposition of what is the difference between a theology of the cross and a theology of glory. Right in essence, and, and, and theology of the cross, i.e. obviously following the cross, theology of glory is not the glory of God, but man's glory, you know, or, or seeking human glory in that sense. And in it, there was one thesis, thesis 21, where he said this, a theologian of glory calls evil good and good evil, whereas a theologian of the cross calls the things what it actually is. That you deal in reality instead of uh, uh, turning things upside down. What does it mean? Uh, Gerhard Forde explains and, and unpacks because, you know, he didn't just put the thesis, he also had his proofs. What we have to say about suffering, he says, is usually a prime example of the faulty speech of the theologian of glory. Suffering is called evil and works good. The word of the cross, however, inflicts the very suffering they talked about. The words are difficult just for the reason Luther says they are. We are inveterate. In other words, we are you know, constantly 
incurable theologians of glory. We are tempted and bound to be so. We invest all our capital in works, our works, our ways of trying to justify ourselves. And he goes on to say, there is then a necessary relation between works and the way we regard suffering. We work to avoid suffering, mostly for here, but sometimes also for the hereafter. Or if we don't work to avoid suffering, we run from it. And, and this is the human condition, you know, that we try and ask the question. This is why we are often asked this question. You know, why is this happening to me? I go to church every week, what? I do my quiet time every day, i.e. my works should make me avoid suffering, seeing suffering as something evil. What Luther is trying to say, what this theologian is trying to say, is that suffering is not always evil. It's God working His purposes out in our lives. But uh, a more contemporary theologian, Carl Truman, unpacks it in a way which I think is really helpful. He has an article on the uh, theology of the cross, and he says this, In simple terms, the theologian of glory assumed that there was a basic continuity between the way the world is and the way God is. If strength is demonstrated through raw power on earth, then God's strength must be the same, only extended to infinity. As such a theologian, to such a theologian, the cross is simply foolishness and a piece of nonsense. That's why Paul in the letter to the Corinthians says, right, the cross is a stumbling block to the Jews and is foolishness to the Greeks. That it doesn't compute, it doesn't make sense. What do I mean? If I can use popular culture, you know, there is a meme that goes about, I don't know if you've ever seen this, this is bodybuilder Jesus, right? And he said, you know, Jesus is the superhero and, and on the cross, he cr crushed the cross. And that's what we would like God to be, right? If might is right, then let's extend it towards God and let him this demonstrate his might and his power. What we have is instead the depiction of Hans Holbein, the body of the dead Christ in the tomb. Think about it. You know, the theology of the cross says to us that God achieves His intended purposes by doing the exact opposite of that which humans might expect. God triumphed over sin and evil by allowing sin and evil to apparently triumph over him. That in laying down his life, he defeated death. That in laying down his life, he put an end to the curse of sin over us. Truman uh, goes on to talk about this in very um, uh, uh, personal and powerful terms with regards to the church. He says this, the cultural norms of many churches seem no different to the cultural norms of, well, the culture. <laughs> they often indicate an attitude to power and influence that sees these things as directly related to size, market share, consumerist packaging, aesthetics, youth culture, media appearances, swagger, and the all-round noise and pyrotechnics we associate with modern cinema rather than New Testament Christianity. And he's critical about modern churches, you know, and, 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 and I think advisedly so. Because you see, what we have seen arise in the church today is what is called a celebrity culture. We tend to valorize, we tend to make heroes. We're looking for heroes to put on pedestals. Uh, someone was pointing out, you know, the 
political turmoil this week is also likewise because we've been looking for heroes, that we've been uh, trying to uh, uh, valorize people and then they let us down, <laughs> right? Um, um, and, and this is our human condition and it is the human problem that all of us need to be very aware of. But let's conclude as we look at this passage. Verses 23 uh, to 24 continue. Not only creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? Importantly, we see that, you know, the willingness of the Spirit uh, uh, at work in our lives is primarily manifest in a way in which it talks about, Paul talks about him as the first fruits of the Spirit. Now, some of you know one of my favorite fruits is durian, right? Uh, and I remember in my younger days, durian season was very confined, very limited. Nowadays, I don't know what they've done, whether genetically modified. Any time of the year, you can find durian. The growing season seemed to be extended both ends, year-end and mid-year. But I remember as a kid, you know, looking forward to durians appearing at the roadside uh, vendors, right? <laughs> or these stalls, or these people. You know, the first fruits of the durian, and I learned, don't, don't go and buy the first fruits because it's very expensive, sometimes not so good. But it tells you the promise that the harvest is coming. Right? And you, your, your mouth starts to water, and you start to anticipate, and you start to look forward uh, to durians coming, and in the, um, we were not an agricultural society. That's the only thing I, I could think of as first fruits. But the point that Paul was trying to make is that, you know, the Holy Spirit has been given to us as a promise of the harvest that is to come. That the, the gifts of the Spirit of healing, of works of miracles, of words of knowledge, and the like, on and on and on, these things are the first fruits of what is to come. I criticized earlier and over-realized eschatology. But there is the flip side of it, where as Christians, we can also be guilty of having an under-realized eschatology. I.e., we become very cerebral, very intellectual as Christians. That is all about what I know and what I believe. That there is no power in my Christian walk, in my Christian faith. That the power of the Spirit is put to one side. Why is it important that we be a people who walk in the fullness of the Holy Spirit, live life in the Spirit, and be led by the Spirit? It's because all of us not only need a conversion of our mind, of our heart, but of our affections. Now, what do I mean by affections? I'm drawing from uh, the, the scholar Jonathan Edwards, he wrote a book, a treatise on religious affections. And what he means by affections are really the strong inclinations of the soul that are, you know, worked out in our thinking, in our feeling, in our acting. You see, too often uh, we, we live in a scientific age and we think, you know, following on from Descartes, right, that we are thinking things. That all we are is just, you know, what we think. But in reality, we are much more than that. I mean, this week has pointed out to us, these are very bright and intelligent people. Yet their passions led them to make foolish decisions that have not only jeopardized their own careers and futures, 
but has you know brought untold damage to their families and and we we pray for them we 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 need to be uh, um compassionate towards them and honestly as christians who understand the power of prevailing sin in our lives we ought to be saying but there for the grace of god but for the grace of god there go i that all of us you know have that potential which is why we we put checks and balances and safeguards into our own lives to make sure we don't find ourselves in those situations which is so easy to be but you know the reality is this that the matters of the heart, the emotions can often lead us astray, which is why that also needs to be converted. And that's where I think the power of the Holy Spirit really comes in. That I know we've often said, you know, don't be emotional about your uh, uh, Christianity, but I think the flip side is also problematic where we discount the emotions and we don't allow God to work on our emotions and to help us, you know, to, to, to uh, um, conform our passions, our affections to His will. That's what it means, I believe, Paul, when he talks about that we need to be led by the Spirit, we need to be walked walk by the Spirit, we need to do things according to the Spirit, is what he's telling us. And you see, this is the assurance he gives us, that we are eagerly awaiting our adoptions, and, you know, especially the redemption of our bodies. I don't know about you, you know, after I turned 50, and now I'm well into my 50s, I realized, I, amen, Lord, please redeem my body. You know, what used to be no problem walking up the stairs now, oh, every step is painful, <laughs> right? Or in the past, I could do all kinds of exercises and now, you know, there are certain exercises you just stay away from <laughs> uh, because your body is beginning to break down. And it's like, you know, uh, I was commenting to someone, uh, since the warranty expired in the, the building, some of our things like, Immediately within a month or two, things break down. We have to call it in <laughs> replacement part. This exhaust fan, within a, a month uh, of uh, the expiration of the warranty, we have to replace all the uh, uh, motors that drive the exhaust uh, vents. Um, and, and, you know, it seems the same way with our bodies in that sense. And that's why, ultimately, Paul says this. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And that's the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts and in our lives. That He gives us a glimpse of what is to come in His operation in the here and now. But He also builds up our hope because He assures us that there is now therefore no condemnation to those of us who are in Christ Jesus. As I pointed out last week and the week before, it was talked about the reality of prevailing sin in our lives does not disqualify us from the grace of God. That God's forgiveness is still offered to us freely to all those who truly repent as we say in our liturgy. Why week after week we do the general confession because we are reminded that we live along with creation and we are groaning and we are waiting and we are hoping for the redemption of our souls and our bodies ultimately. But in the meantime, we wait with hope. We wait because God empowers us the ability to wait. And He is in the process also of renewing us here and now. And that we embrace life as it comes. You know, not asking the question, Lord, why am He? But really asking, Lord, to what purpose have you put me in this place? What can I learn from this? Are there sins I need to repent of? Are there ways in which I need to uh, adjust my attitudes? 
you know, um, um, are you teaching me? Uh, someone was, uh, when I was on holiday recently, you know, with friends, they pointed out, oh, Lord, yeah, one of my um, areas that I really need to grow on in the fruit of the Spirit is the fruit of patience. <laughs> I tend to be very impatient. And, you know, I like to be on time for everything. And uh, I was taught to have to wait for people because if you've got nine people, it's like, you know, as we are ready to go, oh, I need to go to the toilet. You know? <laughs> then after one, go, oh, I think I need to go too. And then you end up waiting and being late. But it's, it's, it's these situations in which God then helps you grow in the virtue that you need, right? In the testing, I mean, you don't need patience if everything comes to you instantly, isn't it? If life is smooth and no problem. You hear what I'm saying? Do you understand what the Lord is maybe speaking to you about in your own life? where you're at. That's why, you know, Paul elsewhere in, in Ephesians talks about be filled with the Spirit. And in the tense we've talked about, it's, it's, it's in a continuous, it's, it's meant to be something that it's an ongoing process. Not just once and then be done with it. But for God to continue to do His work in our lives through the infilling of His Holy Spirit to help transform us more and more and more into the likeness of His Son. Let's bow our heads in prayer. I thank You, Lord, that Your Holy Spirit is willingly at work in each and every one of our lives. And Lord, I pray that you continue to assure us of your presence with us. That as we hear that word, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you, that it is the work of your Holy Spirit in us that assures us of your presence. That you are God in the now with us, to lead us into who we are as sons and daughters, to receive that spirit of adoption so that we can cry out to you, Abba, Father, and ultimately, Lord, to see the first fruits of the Spirit at work in our own lives. To recognize the hope that we long for and what is yet to come. So that we may walk this path you have placed before us faithfully, patiently, but also with perseverance. And Father, I pray for those of us who maybe have uh, been running dry in so many ways, that Lord, you fill us afresh by your Holy Spirit today. Just go ahead and add your own prayers, if that's your heart's cry, for a fresh move of the Holy Spirit in your life. Lord, we ask and pray. Give us again the gift of the Holy Spirit that we need more of you, Lord, not less. So that we may walk by the Spirit, not be led by the flesh. That we uh, would recognize our freedom in Christ because whom the Son sets free shall be free indeed. Thank you, Lord. We ask and we pray these things in your Son's most precious name. Amen.